With Medical Memory recording hundreds of thousands of patients with their HIPAA-compliant mobile app, we felt it was relevant to start discussing the best practices in patient communication, especially now that so many providers are recording these patient interactions with video. My name is Julie Uramez, and I've spent 15 years working with physicians to strengthen their communication skills. Listen in as we learn tips from the industry's best in patient experience. How can we strengthen these patient and family conversations and help our nurses and providers optimize their time, especially now that the camera is on. So quiet on the set, roll camera. This is scene one, take one, patient. Now, action. Hi, my name is Julie Uramez. I am with Medical Memory, and this is our next episode of Take One Patient. I am very excited to be talking to my colleague, uh, Dr. Brian Wahomi. Uh, he has a very interesting background with, he actually is a doctor and a lawyer um, and graduated kind of with both of those degrees. Um, and so he brings a really interesting perspective as we're talking about um, how recording, how video, how communication, um, all is impacted by both the law and also a person within medicine. Um, so thanks, Brian, for joining us, or Dr. Wilhelmy for joining us. Um, why don't you kind of tell us first a little bit more about your experience and, and kind of your know-how in this space? Yeah, thanks, Julie, for uh, inviting me to come today and talk with you. Um, so my background is uh, I joined medicine uh, in a medical school at Mayo Clinic, and uh, uh, Within a few years, I had gone to the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, which was part of my uh, training in law. Uh, I returned to Mayo Clinic and then went on to residency in anesthesia at Johns Hopkins uh, before finally settling in out in Arizona at St. Joseph's Hospital, Dignity St. Joseph's, uh, where I'm currently the chair and the chair of the uh, Creighton University School of Medicine's anesthesia department. So I've been doing that. And then at the same time, I do a medical consulting business that hovers around the medical legal space, especially with medical malpractice, and work pretty extensively with physicians, training them, uh, not only in the uh, malpractice aspects of things, but also in different components, such as depositions and uh, how to respond to different types of questions they may arise uh, in their own practice. So that's where I'm at right now. Great. Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and this is one of the areas that you and I met when we were working with medical memory, um, was really around informed consent. And that started to be a really big space where a lot of providers were starting to not only use video to record them giving these instructions, but also even record, pre-record kind of their informed consent instructions um, to give to different patients that were having certain surgeries. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting spaces that as we're looking at, you know, access to guests is restricted as more people aren't able to always be in the room with these patients, we're looking at more and more of these conversations being recorded. Now, one of the questions and concerns that a lot of our providers consistently have is, well, what if I forget to say something? What if I um, don't say the right thing? Um, and how I don't want to be sued for information that I didn't necessarily give appropriately via video. Um, what would your kind of thoughts be in that, especially as it relates to the informed consent conversation? So 
I think informed consent is is a, is a really interesting topic with a medical malpractice. And to some extent, a lot of uh, the way that technology is unfolding, uh, we're going to be seeing in the upcoming years uh, how objective evidence is used in the courtroom to help, um, you know, with our litigation. So not only in the classic sense of having pen and paper, medical records, or, um, you know, just oral conversations, but where we discuss habits and whatnot, but we'll actually be having more objective evidence in the form of video or uh, emails or electronic communications like text messages, uh, which will really uh, start to impact court proceedings more and more as we go forward. Um, I like to call it the time of informed consent plus, because it used to be simply that we would uh, have a simple conversation. And if it was ever contested in a courtroom, uh, we would basically have a, uh, you know, an open discussion over who was the more reliable witness. Was it the provider uh, of care or was it the patient? And uh, after, uh, you know, being in a litigation setting, we already have a lot of different types of feelings about the characters involved. Um, and I think the beautiful thing about having uh, uh, videotape recordings in this sense is it gives you a sense of Hey, this is who this person is to begin with, and uh, look at look at they're a good person. Uh, they're they're working as a provider. They're out there doing their best, and it, it really changes the flavor of how you look at the provider. So, kind of this informed consent plus part, having video is not only a representation of what was said, but it's also a representation of the character. Right. Well, and it's interesting you say that because we um, we when we started looking at malpractice and a lot of providers, we started even looking at recording would ask us the question, well, what happens if, if I'm sued? What happens if something like that? We're like, well, we don't actually know. And this was five or six years ago when this was really starting to come out. Now recording and telehealth is, is much, much more common um, that I think people are, are already kind of relaxing and not thinking, oh my gosh, if I, if I forget to say something or I do something, it's not gonna necessarily mean that, you know, I made a, I made a mistake or I'm gonna be sued. But one of the things that we, when we looked at uh, different um, legal opinion letters of some of the lawyers in the community and just in some of the partnerships that we had, they said the same thing that they said, you know, you're showing yourself in the best light. You're showing yourself in your room, in your space, in your white coat and, and doing all the things um, that you can to help educate a patient um, versus someone sitting across in, in a suit and tie and not in their best self. And so it was like, you know, showing that character, that empathy is also being recorded. Um, and so be aware of, you know, maybe it actually be into your benefit versus the other way around. Yeah, so let's uh, let's take a step back even just to look at informed consent. So if you had to look at all malpractice cases, uh, probably probably 10 to 15% involve some form of informed consent claim. Uh, it's a minority of cases, but at the same time, that minority can be very important if it's you. Uh, so when we look at the standards that we're looking at, uh, traditionally the standard 50 years ago would have been you know, what does a reasonable physician expect to uh, inform, to, uh, provide as information to the patient? Yeah. So the, the focus is really on the reasonableness of a physician. So the reasonableness standard is, is really, really common in torts. And this is what malpractice is, is a tort. Um, but uh, in this case now, uh, as we move to an era of more physician, or, pa or pardon me, patient autonomy, we're looking at the uh, reasonableness standard in a different way uh, across almost every jurisdiction, which is what would a reasonable patient want to understand about their care in order to make good choices? 
Um, looking into some things just to kind of inform this, you know, if we look at the uh, American Medical Association, they've come up pretty strongly on informed consent that there is kind of three points, which is the first is to assess the patient's ability to understand relevant medical information. So you have to really break it down to the patient's level or if they're un if they're not uh, able to make independent voluntary decisions, there needs to be a decision maker present. Um, the second is, is to uh, provide relevant information accurately and sensitively, uh, keeping in mind the patient's preferences for receiving medical education. So some people will want uh, traditional oral conversations. Some people will want video or other types of screening questions, which I think would be very useful. And this is part of the medical memory that I think is really ingenious. Um, we should include, you know, not only the diagnosis of what's going on, uh, but what this intervention would do for you. You know, what is the intended intervention do? And then finally, the last one is the burdens and risks and, you know, expected benefits of all options, including uh, foregoing this treatment. And so we talk about risk benefits and alternatives. And one of those alternatives is always, hey, what if we don't do this at all? Yeah. Uh, so in that way, uh, we are moving it into providing a really full understanding of what a reasonable patient would want at this point in time with very rare exceptions. Right. So uh, I think that that's what's really coming into this era of you know informed consent plus is uh, we are going to be providing the patients with different ways of receiving that information specified to who they are and you know specifically looking at uh, video is one of those options. Right. Well, it's interesting one of the things that you said is, um, being able to prove that they are able to understand the information and receive the information. Um, and, and that can become a very big challenge when you're looking at just two people in a room and no one else even knew what happened in that room. Um, where I do think for, you know, University of Southern Florida, for example, they have their neurosurgery team records, they give videos of these and then they record these conversations too, simply to capture the patient asking questions and then being able to respond to the questions to kind of prove that, okay, we're having this dialogue still. It's not me just saying, Hey, we're going to do this, right? Like thumbs up. Like it's like making sure that they're really, you know, having that back and forth and being able to prove, okay, I do comprehend and understand what we're going to be doing today. Right. Right. And I think that's the beauty of having a, a responsive uh, style of technology is that you can say, you know, first off, you can program it in to say, you know, do I, did I receive this information? Uh, and do I have any other questions? You know, if, if you have other questions, maybe they should be forwarded in some form of communication that you choose. Maybe it's electronic, maybe it's oral, maybe it is written, you know, those same types of things. But uh, I think the ability to track your patients and, you know, whether they receive the information or whether they are actually making good judgment calls uh, regarding, you know, you know, being able to ask questions and have your questions been satisfied, uh, satisfactorily answered, right? So yeah. you could track, you know, hey, how many of my patients feel as though they have had satisfactory consent? 95%. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a that's a good metric to track. Right. So how would you even suggest if you were going to even give advice to a provider there, where they're either starting to you know, just be more aware of their communication style as it comes to informed consent or looking at now using video, recording these things? I mean, what would you say is, hey, these are kind of the biggest tips that you should think about to ensure you're following this process and not um, at risk? 
Right. Well, with informed consent, I always say, you know, the most significant and the most common, right? So with anesthesia, for instance, you know, I always do quote a risk of death, even though death is extremely uncommon, it's extremely severe. So almost if you were to make an equation, you would say severity times frequency, and that's whether I should talk about it, right? So if it's extremely severe, it almost makes very little difference of how common it is, right? So death is extremely uncommon, but I still mention a risk of death of about one in 250,000. I also talk about serious injuries. Now, uh, within anesthesia world, we talk about things like uh, neurologic injury, cardiac injury, or uh, renal injury. Those are some of the most common uh, anesthetic major complications. And I'll leave those general uh, topics, you know, renal, neurologic, cardiovascular, almost at a systems level. And with those specifically, if I had to get more specific, I would go into it with individual patients, but I would uh, probably put that as about one in 10,000 risk for most patients if you had a general population. Uh, So still, it's it's not very common. But then there are things that are more common in anesthesia. For instance, uh, in anesthesia, the risk of becoming postoperative nauseous is very, very high. Yeah. Uh, And so I mentioned that even though it's not as severe even though I think at the time you might feel like it's pretty severe to be nauseous. Uh, however, I mean, at the time, but, but it is very, very common. So I, I do make a mention of that as well as I make a mention of uh, irritated throat. Uh, sure. you know, so you might have a scratchy throat or somewhat painful throat. Right. And that's pretty common, even though, again, a few days later, most people say, hey, I feel pretty good about it. Right. Uh, and then I'll kind of start to personalize risk. So, you know, if someone comes in with three uh, cardiac stents, I'll say your risk of heart attack is greater than the uh, average patient. And you may may know that because you have already had discussions with your cardiologist. Right. And so I'll personalize risk like that. And so that's the beauty of kind of an approach to informed consent. So first off, use that equation to say severity times frequency. Yeah. uh, and, And really address the most severe and the most frequent and then start to go into personalized risk, right. you know, so for specific people will have specific, more personalized risks. And I think that'll help you kind of guide you to, you know, uh, getting a large percentage of those big topics out of the way. Because for the most part, you probably don't list every single thing that possibly could happen. And I think that's one of the biggest questions or concerns for some providers that are like, well, now I'm going to record it. What if I don't list the one thing that then they ended up having. Um, keeping in mind, you know, even a video recording or even recording that message is only part of a, of a grander conversation. Oftentimes they're listed in the, you know, actual paperwork that they sign. It's not like this is the whole piece, but what are your thoughts about like those that are like, what if I forget to mention something? Um, right. That happens to be the one thing that they happen to have happen. Right, right. And, that, and that's the beauty of what I would call that informed consent plus. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, any one provider will mention every single uh, topic every single time. And that's that reasonableness standard, right? So it's not uh, the perfect provider, right. but it is what a reasonable patient would want to hear, right? It's not the patient who needs to hear everything, but it's what a reasonable patient would want to hear. Right, so, right, right. you know, uh, so that's kind of a guide, even though it's not a perfect guide. Um, but that's where your supplements what the beauty of having, you know, traditionally it has been a, a, a informed consent piece of paper, some objective documentation, but increasingly now with this era of electronic communications, it is 
moving into these um, video conference or these videotaped uh, discussions of informed consent, or even these feedback type of systems where you can have the patient answer one or two questions yeah. uh, regarding um, you know what they perceive the risks to be. Sure. or what what was mentioned in the video that was just pre uh pre you know played for them right prior to uh answering these questions right because you mentioned that, that that's a really big piece is making sure that the patient like has some sort of response of their ability to understand so how do most providers kind of go about ensuring that you know checkbox in the informed consent place is hit in a communication style without putting themselves at risk right right themselves at risk well, and I think I think when we talk about objective data, you, a lot of these things have some pretty interesting metadata on them, you know, so like, for instance, you might be able to save the time and date of when the patient had this uh, confirmation sure. uh, without with, you know, just a simple click of a box or, you know, uh, oh, by the way, this when you send this in, there is an automatic response. Did you have any more questions? Yeah, you could program in any number of interactions. Uh, and by doing that, you you can continue that conversation. And eventually, uh, this is the beauty of bringing all this in front of a jury as far as objective evidence is you say, wow, you know, this, this uh, physician really went out of their way yeah. to not only have a conversation, which we recorded, uh, but also, oh, here's a sheet of paper, uh, informed consent, almost like a uh, full description on a paper, sure. uh, maybe a video, Oh, here are some different questions that were asked and answered, and here's some date and time metadata. Yeah. So we have a really, really full, uh, robust amount of objective evidence to say, wow, this person went out of their way to really try and enhance the patient's experience. Right. Well, and that's, I think, goes back to what you're saying is what's being reasonable is even if something's, you know, forgotten said or at the beginning, if you're saying, hey, I'm doing everything I can to best educate my patients by providing all these resources or supplements. Um, to continue this as being a conversation and not just to hear sign this right away um, becomes powerful as you're trying to, I guess, plead or prove your case, you know? Right, right. And, and frequently when I document informed consent as a lawyer, you know, I'll, I'll say the risks, benefits and alternatives have been discussed as well as the alternative of doing nothing. So, you know, risks, they go without saying the ones we just mentioned, the benefits, you know, this was a benefit. This is what we intend to have happen. This is why the alternatives, maybe there is this procedure, maybe there's a separate procedure we could discuss or a different way of doing this that we could discuss. Uh, and then really uh, the option of just, you know, listen, we don't have to go forward. Yeah. And I think uh, by saying risk benefits alternative, including the risk of not doing anything, uh, it, it, it eliminates a lot of those uh, challenges. And when I use the word discussed, it's incredibly specific, okay? Discussion involves a two-way exchange of ideas, right? right? I'm not, I'm not, it's not an informed consent tling. It's an yeah. informed consent discussion, right? Sure. And so it's yeah. that back and forth that's really, really key in this situation, so. Sure. No, absolutely. Well, and I think the things that became pretty powerful with a lot of our partners that are using medical memory right now where they have their doctors pre-record, you know, the risk benefits alternatives to some of the major surgeries that they're doing. Well, when they're able to send that out to a patient, they're still having that as part of the conversation, but they are doing what you're saying is there's a timestamp that they were sent it, uh, timestamp that they watched it, um, even a timestamp that they shared it, shared it with loved ones or anyone else that might be their medical power of attorney or, or, or kind of right. also in 
impactful in that decision-making process. Um, and so it, it's, it's interesting that even kind of those broad strokes of these extra supplements, as you're saying, can kind of just continue to prove that the provider's doing everything that they can to best educate so that if something does happen or if there is something brought about, it's providing more, you know, resources or, or proof that they're being reasonable in their explanation. Right, right. And I, yeah. and I, and I think the beauty, beauty of this is that it provides uh, patients with a ongoing, uh, you know, educational experience, even when they're not physically in the presence of a busy physician. Okay, so if you're a practice, you're out there and you're uh, seeing a patient every 15 minutes to hour, uh, you know, that might be the one moment you see them or a couple of moments you see them be prior to surgery or prior to any other type of uh, intervention. Uh, meanwhile, you know, this ongoing uh, sending out of a video, time stamping, asking questions, providing that option of electronic communication. Wow, that's a whole nother area where you can have, uh, you know, conversations and things that would you can have, but at the same time be utilizing your own time efficiently to see other things and have other things going on at the same time. So now what are your thoughts even too about, um, you know, one of the components I, re I feel like I remember hearing was um, about shared decision-making and providing the patient, you know, the resources, or I don't know if it's the time um, to make sure that they're able to have other people a part of, of choosing, you know, making their decision of surgery or not. Um, right. what, what's kind of your perspective about that? Well, I think, I think, it, uh, you know, as we look at this, you know, code of medical ethics from the American Medical Association, one of the first things is it talks about, you know, the re relevant information uh, and, and what's their ability to understand it. So, you know, as we all age and or, you know, suffer various types of medical maladies, uh, you know, we, we kind of have a natural decline of the ability to make our own decisions. In those situations, we might have, you know, fairly complex webs of decision makers. You know, sometimes it's one really strong power of attorney or someone who's making all the legal decisions. Uh, and sometimes there's a, a almost like a, a team to, yeah. to speak to. And some of those teammates are there. Some of them come to the appointments all the time. Some of the teammates are at home. And, and that's really where sharing that uh, uh, appointment with other people becomes like a real beautiful thing because that's where you can really get the value of getting the whole team together. Um, and, and those discussions then, uh, you know, will prime your patients to have the decision made and have the, the, the team, so to speak, uh, all ready to go with this decision-making as well. Right. Uh, and that's the beauty because, you know, no one wants to be the only person left out and say, oh, I was the one who didn't understand anything. And I was the one who wasn't told things, but everyone else was. In this case, everyone can share in that same discussion. Right, right. No, absolutely. And providing like the patient with the means to, to give these resources or this video or this sheet to the other people that they may potentially be involved in, in that capacity. Right, right. And I, I think that, you know, what, what's very interesting is, is we, you know, we talk about various lawyers and their opinions. Um, you know, one of the strongest opinions is it is about um, rapport with your patients. It is about having them feel comfortable with what is being said to them. Yes. And, uh, you know, the, the real uh, key is, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, people are initiate medical malpractice because they feel as though they've been uh, misled or, um, 
in some way uh, not provided all the information that they would uh, need to make decisions or that someone frankly didn't tell them the truth. These are the things that really set off malpractice at a much higher rate. And that's really, really well studied in the literature. If you were to dig through and say, well, what is this number one cause of malpractice? It's not only a bad outcome, but it's a bad outcome plus. Sure. And it's a bad outcome plus all these uh, mm -hmm. negative feelings yeah, that are engendered, yeah, yeah. you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think just as, as the kind of tip or communication tip, even you had mentioned before is, you know, that equation that you had said, and then also making sure that this always feels like a discussion. This is never one piece of the conversation. It's, it's also, there's a, a little bit of a patient responsibility that if you are having questions, and you're not understanding as long as you're being asked, Hey, do you get it? Do you have any questions? Are you understanding the risks and benefits? There's a little element of, you know, what's the patient's responsibility to make sure that they're also, you know, being accountable to all of these pieces too, and are able to have that discussion. And you keep saying the word discussion um, versus just like consent. It's, it's really a conversation throughout that whole process, which is sometimes more than an appointment, more than a piece of paper, right. obviously, too. Right. Well, I think it's beautiful. I, you know, when you, when you talk about autonomy, there are rights, right? Like we have rights to what we believe that we are entitled to as far as what we are entitled to know and we're entitled to be informed and what information that we are entitled to understand, right? But there's also responsibilities. I do think that, you know, when we look at patients, part of that reasonable standard is what is a reasonable patient's responsibility? Sure. So if they come in and they want to be fully uninformed, like willfully, that's that's uh, reflected that way as well. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think the beauty of recording feedback is if someone truly chooses to be malinformed, yeah. uh, that's also recorded. Right. Uh, it takes a he said, she said part two, you know. Yeah, it, be, it really does lock in a pretty objective standard in that way. And I think that's pretty uh, good when you're talking about, you know, when we're looking at the practices of the future, they are going to be more ingrained with things other than people, you know, paper and pencil. They're going to be ingrained with video and metadata and other types of information. So Absolutely. it's very important. So last question for you is, is what, what um, advice or, or thoughts would you give to a provider who's you know, wanting to dive into technology, wanting to use something like medical memory where they're recording their visits more often um, and are a little bit nervous, either A, on their own communication skills or just nervous about potentially getting sued. What would be, you know, a, a piece of advice or two that you would give to a provider in that space? Well, I think a big part of it is to look at your industry standards, you know. So for me as an anesthesiologist, I actually look to the American Society of Anesthesia regarding their uh, common informed consent discussions yeah. and, and really the risks and benefits that are, are kind of commonly discussed within the field, okay. Yeah. That is the standard when we ultimately look at it is part of it is that uh, standard of what would, you know, our, our physicians do in these situations. So. Um, your own field will have pretty good standardized discussions available if you really look into literature and understand your risk profile of what you're doing, right. uh, as well as the complication rates of various types of procedures that you embark upon. So it is pretty important to, to really understand your literature uh, and to um, look at whether the industry norms, like what, what do people tend to put on um, consent forms or, you know, uh, mention in their discussions, you know, but right. again, that, when you when all else fails that you know equation you know severity times 
uh, likelihood is 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 pretty standard. That's a good one to to use in your own mind. Right. Well, and as you said, kind of earlier is, you know, you're still providing all the information you can. If you are providing more information by using video, by providing that patient with a resource that they can continue to go back to, um, regardless is, is you're kind of, it, it's showcasing it in more of a positive light um, by recording and using it versus a risk factor. Right, right. And I think that, um, you know, when you when you are uh, talking to patients, you are, you know, you're, you're balancing it, you're balancing benefits. You know, if you're saying, hey, we're doing this for a reason, there's a benefit to this. Yeah. Now, there is a risk involved, but there's a risk of doing nothing as well. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, otherwise, we wouldn't be doing the things in the first place. And so I think that a lot of times, your discussions can be very frank. And, and uh, also, um, you know, you can remark that you understand the seriousness of the situation. I think patients actually generally uh, prefer that. Yeah. And that's part of that uh, avoiding surprise is to remark on the seriousness of the situation. Yeah. Uh, and and, and I, I don't think patients are as afraid of that as um, I think several physicians tend to uh, feel. Sometimes I think people are very afraid that if I actually tell them that this is potentially serious, they will shy away from it. And I actually find uh, somewhat the different yeah. that patients tend to appreciate uh, people being very, very uh, forward with that type of information. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, wonderful. You know, Dr. Wahomi, you are a wealth of knowledge. This is a very interesting subject. I think as, as people are starting to lean more into different ways of technology, lean more towards recording, um, I so, so appreciate your intellect and your time. Um, to talk about something incredibly relevant, especially as, again, patients are starting or providers are starting to do this more often. Um, so thank you so, so much. Um, it was a pleasure having you. Um, anything else you want to say? <laughs> so, right. Well, I, I, uh, I, I'm excited to come back when the first uh, cases come through that uh, actually reflect more uh, of this new practice. Uh, hopefully they are resoundingly found in favor of the people who are the providers yeah. uh, for providing good care. So right. we'll be back to talk about that. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate you. Have a good rest of your night. All right. Thank you. And cut. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take One Patient. We hope you have a nugget or two you can implement into your practice with your patients today. For more information about recording your visits with a HIPAA compliant app, go to www.themedicalmemory.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Julie Recording Doctors. Thanks again.